you know God forgives, right? And so I th- I'm going to pray that God forgives me for forgetting my Bible. I have no idea where it is. Can someone grab me one of the Bibles from the back table? Uh, this is not a joke. I really need a Bible. Can somebody <laughs> grab one for me? <laughs> Thanks, Dwayne. Uh, yeah, I thought I left it on this table and it's not on the table. So if somebody has stolen my Bible, I'm glad. That's, I want to trade. I like that Bible. So thank you, Don. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Don Farmer, Bible Rescue. <laughs> Man, that's like the preacher's greatest fear is forgetting your Bible. But luckily, uh, they're pretty much all the same. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 15 today. And uh, we are uh, kind of coming to the conclusion of a series that we've been in. We're in week four, I think, of our series today. And so for those of you that are joining us here in person and those who are joining us online, thank you so much for uh, investing the time to study one of Jesus' most infamous teachings, what's usually called, at least in our culture, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, But as we've seen, this is actually uh, a story or a teaching that focuses on the love of and the response of the father. And that helps us understand the nature of God. And so uh, even as we begin, this is the question that we've been thinking about in different versions. Uh, But I just want you to pause for a moment and, and answer this question to yourself. How do you envision God? So when you pray, when you imagine, when you're just kind of kicking around in your day-to-day life, how do you envision God? What type of character qualities do you envision God to have? What's God's posture towards you? How does God respond to you? What does God want for you and from you? And we've been exploring this question because this is especially important when we feel far from God or when we rebel against God or when we find ourselves kind of on the moral treadmill of just trying to earn God's love, as many, as our, as many in our culture tell us that we're supposed to do. And here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives us this profound teaching that guides our answer to the question, how should we envision God? So here's what we're going to do. We've been doing this each week. I'm going to read through the parable in its entirety. And uh, if you're a read-along kind of person, maybe you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'm going to ask that uh, just for this moment that you would maybe put that away or turn the phone off. I'm going to read this parable out loud. I'm going to ask that you would receive it into your mind uh, the way that it was intended to. It's totally fine to read parables. That's awesome. Uh, But one of the things that you find is that these are designed primarily to be heard in the context of community. When we hear something, our mind operates a little bit differently. Our imagination tends to come alive than when we just read through uh, text on a page. So I'm going to ask that that you would do that. Don't worry. If you're a follow-along kind of person, we are going to put the text up and we're going to go through and and notice some things in the text today. But just for this moment, I'm going to ask that you would receive in this teaching and and let it uh, just let it fall upon your ears uh, this morning. This is in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and on. So Jesus says that a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. 
Uh, Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'm gonna get up. I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up, and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to him threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was out in the field and he came near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then he, the older brother, became angry. He didn't want to go in. And so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. And I have never disobeyed any one of your orders. Yet you never gave me so much as a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. This is the word of the Lord. When you envision God, how do you envision him to be? When you imagine God, What are the character qualities that come to your mind? When you think or pray, how do you think God's posture towards you is? 
How do you envision God? In this story with a point, this parable, Jesus points out the father's response to two different types of children. One is the rebellious son who turns from his father and goes his own way to a foreign land and squanders all of his father's wealth. And the other, the rebellious older brother who instead of going to a foreign land, stays put out in the field and tries to earn his father's favor by doing all the right things and being a good little boy. But notice what's presumed in the parable. There are three main characters, the father and how many sons? Two sons. Who is the God character? The father. Now, how do you know that? What'd you say, God the father? All right, let's tease it. He's called the father sometimes. So let's take a look at where. Thank you, Holly. For, do you want to come? Do, you're doing great work. Ladies and gentlemen, Holly Bodine. Excellent. Yeah, so how do we know, right? In just a plain reading of the parable, you don't know if you only read Luke 15. Yeah, right? Is it God? Is it not God? I mean, who, you know, who is it? Now, the reason that we know that the Father is God the Father is, number one, Jesus frequently referred to God as God the Father. You see it in, um, you guys ever heard of the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer? Uh, The disciples go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. The whole thing starts off with our Father. If you're Catholic, sometimes it's referred to as the Our Father, right? So Our Father. Now, where does that come from? So I just want to do a, a real quick little history of the Bible. Now, the Bible starts with the book of, at least my Bible does. I don't know if this Bible does. It's a borrowed Bible. Oh, yeah, this one does too. Okay, so the Bible, probably your Bible too, starts with Genesis, right? And Genesis starts like this. Such a wonderful opening, not opening line. In the beginning, right? Such a classic line. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get uh, the, the creation of people... People rebel against God. They turn their own way. They go their own way. They basically say, I'm going to be God of my own universe. I don't want you. And thus creates a problem. You have rebellious humanity turning their back on God, giving God the finger, going their own way. And then what the rest of Genesis is about is trying to answer this question, what is God going to do in light of humanity's rebellion? And you have uh, the flood narrative, which proves that God could just hit the cosmic reset button but he chooses not to, and in his grace, he sets forth a plan to redeem and restore rebellious humanity by becoming human himself and dying in our place, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter, because that was the climactic moment of God's plan to restore and call back humanity, rebellious humanity, to himself. Exodus is the book that follows Genesis, and it tells the story, kind of the the second part of uh, God's story of raising up a people, and through this people would come Jesus. Now, in the story of Exodus, it starts like this. Uh, The people of God, the the Jewish people, were held captive by, does anybody, this is Bible trivia, they were held captive by one of the most mighty empires of the day. Does anybody remember the name of it? They do the thing. Yeah, Egypt, right? Good job. Okay, so Egypt, right? And so Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. They're enslaved in Egypt. But God makes a promise, right? He's got this promise. Through this people group, I'm going to restore all of humanity. Now, here's the deal. 
If you, and I would encourage you actually to do this, if you just do a straightforward reading from Genesis until the opening parts of Exodus, ask yourself this question. How do the, the people of Israel, how do the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how do they envision God? As they think about this, you know, this powerful entity that is doing things in their midst, what do they think when they think about God? When they pray, how do they envision God? I want you to know that God doesn't owe you anything. Do you all know that? God doesn't owe you an explanation for himself. And God does not owe you an explanation for how he is, his character, his nature, but he does so out of love. And I want you to see that one of the first ways that God talks about his posture, his relationship to his people is this. It's in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, so you're getting some instruction. Moses is going to go talk to Pharaoh. Uh, he's going to do the let my people go game. And it says this, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Or say, so this is what Yahweh says. This is what the Lord says. Israel, or my people, is my firstborn son. Now, time out. What does that presume about how God is communicating his relationship to us? What, what is Israel to God? Firstborn what? Son or child, right? You, you now have, in the scripture, as best as I could tell, this is the first time this shows up, you now have the establishment of God relating to his people as a parent, right? Israel is my firstborn son. He's a parent. And then the, the whole thing continues on. In Psalm uh, 68.5, you, you hear this. God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. TV time out. I want you to know that this concept of God as father, we should not take it for granted. God could simply have revealed himself to us as ambiguous sky fairy who showers goodies whenever we pray the right prayers. God could have simply shown us his power and might and only revealed himself to us as mighty king and powerful creator and overlord and dominator. He could have done that. And yet throughout scripture, you have things like Psalm 68.5, God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. Malachi 2.10. I'm married to a Sicilian, so if you want to pronounce it right, it's Malachi, the Italian prophet. Malachi or Malachi 2.10. Don't all of us have one father? Did, God, did, not, did not one God create us? Then why do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Malachi is basically saying this. Don't you see we all have one dad? And so why would we lie, cheat, and steal against each other. I just want to push into that just for a brief moment. When we slander and accuse and dehumanize and use nasty language about other image bearers of God, I think Malachi 2.10 has a word for us. Don't we all have one dad? Are not the people I'm profaning not also image bearers of God? Remember that the next time you're on Facebook, y'all. You could say preach if you want to. Preach. That's right, yeah. Some of us are like, I better get on there now and delete it before Pastor Caleb <laughs> sees what I said. 
Isaiah 64, 8. Yet, yet, Lord, you are our father and we are the clay. You are our potter and we are all the work of your hands. You see running throughout scripture this concept of God as father. I want, I want to just dispel a myth and then we're going to get into the text. There is this wrong idea that there's the God of the Old Testament who's mean and the God of the New Testament who's a loving, gracious father. That is a wrong assessment of the scriptures. The scriptures are united in their presenting God as a loving, gracious, and compassionate father throughout the scriptures. Now, there are some times where he executes vengeance, but you see it not only in the Older Testament, you see it also in the New. Take a look at Revelation, and we'll have a conversation. Okay. So, how do you envision God? Let's go through uh, just a few things and notice. Uh, let's go through the, the, the parable and notice a few things, excuse me. So he says, a man had two sons, right? The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. Do you, uh, I didn't hear you guys gasp. Uh, do, uh, this is uh, insulting. It's communicating to the father, you know, I, I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't want what you've got on offer. Just give me what I've got coming to me and I'm out. Notice what happens next. Uh, I will get, oh, excuse me. So this is what he does. He divides his wealth between them. And this is crazy. This shows a generous and compassionate father, right? What else could the dad have done at that request? He could have given his son what he had coming to him, which is a foot in the mouth. Do you see, right? So even here at the beginning of the parable, you see that God is a gracious father. In fact, some might even say that he is foolish in his love for his son to give him what he asks, right? Another way to view this parable is to say, what father in their right mind would honor this request? What extravagant love the father must have for this son? Now, the son goes off, he squanders the wealth, he goes to a foreign land, he goes his own way, he squanders all of it, ruins his life. Basically, there's a famine in the land, and he finds out that he is impoverished. He's out with pigs, he's feeding them, he works uh, for a person who has no love for him, and he's hungry. And he says, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, what do you think is going to happen next? If you've never heard the parable before, you might assume that the son is going to go back home, the father's going to receive him back as a servant, and then over the course of time, they're going to reconcile and maybe he can earn back his position as a son and maybe he can, you know, kind of make things right with the, with the wealth distribution situation. Maybe it'll take, but it's going to take time, counseling. It's going to take a lot of uh, effort because he's going to have to win over the father's love, right? He's going to have to earn back the father's love. Even look at how the younger son, what he assumes the relationship to be, as he envisions the father, I am no longer, what's the word? Worthy. And so you are assuming at this point, he's gonna go back and he's going to earn the worthiness again, right? Here we go. So he got up and came to his father, okay? And, and what we're all expecting is the dad's gonna be like, sit. 
Now explain to me all of the things you did wrong. And maybe, just maybe, I'll let you play Xbox tonight, right? Like you're just kind of expecting some sort of harsh response. While he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and what? Felt what? Say it with me. Felt compassion. I want you to say it one more time. He felt what? He felt compassion. He felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. By the way, this kiss uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Greek, it's not just like, this is showered him with kisses. He was just abundant joy and embrace of the son. And especially in, the, in, in our culture here in the West, that's rare. In, the, in Jesus' culture, that was close to impossible. Fathers didn't behave this way, especially when they had been slighted by their children. And so he runs out, right, when he was a long way off, he feels compassion for him. Now, that language of compassion, uh, doesn't it remind you of something? Say yes. Doesn't it remind you of something? Something that we talked about in the Bible about the book of Exodus? Remember, I know you remember, but just for my own sake, I'm going to remind myself. Okay, here we go. One of the critical moments in the Exodus story is Mount Sinai and the people of Israel's engagement with their God. Because remember, right, if you're early on in the Exodus story and you ask yourself the question, what, how do people envision, how did these people envision their God to be? They knew very little about him, right? They knew very little about him. All that they knew after he redeemed them out of Egypt is that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the one who led us out of Egypt. That's, that's pretty much what they knew. But at Sinai, you have God revealing himself to his people. You guys ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Uh, They're not actually referred to as the Ten Commandments. They're referred to as the Ten Sayings or the Ten Statements. And one of the things that scholars have pointed out, and I'm of of this opinion as well, you know how many tablets there were? Two. In most ancient covenants, you would have two tablets, and they would be copies of the exact same covenant. One you would keep, and the other would be for the person that you're making a covenant with. Do you see? And so the reason we have two tablets is not because there's, you know, you know, five on one and five on the other, although some of the movies uh, make it out to be. It's because God is covenanting with his people, saying, I'm going to covenant with you, live this way. You will bear my name and live this way. And so you have these 10 sayings. But in the course of this, you have, <laughs> this is so, uh, you, should, you should totally read Exodus. As God's giving the covenant, right, as he's giving these commands or these sayings, and he, Moses is up on the mountain, and this is where you're seeing it. The, move, uh, the movie shifts, right? The camera shifts. And down at the foot of Mount Sinai, you have the people that God just redeemed out of slavery turning from God and saying, we are going to make a, a, a cow out of gold, and he will be our God. <sighs> right? Just like the son turns from the father and says, I'm going to take the wealth that you gave me, and I'm going to go my own way. So to Israel, in Exodus, as, he's, as God the Father is establishing this uh, relationship, it's almost kind of like cheating on um, your uh, betrothed at a wedding ceremony. Like it's, you're supposed to gasp, right? They're down, and they're making the molten calf, the, the, the golden calf, 
And then Moses intercedes on behalf of his people and say, don't destroy us. Let your grace reign. Be gracious towards us. But let me see your glory. You know, Moses as a leader was just exasperated with his people. Can't believe these people, you know. Some of you are in leadership and you've felt that before. But Moses is a good leader. He goes and petitions God and he says, God, don't destroy us even though we've been rebellious. Don't destroy us, but in your grace, would you look favorably upon us? But, Moses says, if you're gonna go with us, I wanna see you. I wanna see your glory. I wanna know you more. Because again, as they envisioned God, they knew very little compared to what we have today with the whole of Scripture. And so this is what God uh, says. This is God's first description of himself. God appears, he allows his glory to pass before Moses, and he describes himself to Moses and, and to us as well. And I want you just to hear, right? What are the options? So if you're an angry God, <laughs> how would you want to describe yourself to get your people in line? If your people had just been done rebelling against you, saying, we're going to go our own way and make our own images, uh, make our own gods, be our own gods, uh, what would be the type of character qualities you would want to communicate to your rebellious people? I'm the powerful God. How about wrathful? Does that sound good? Right? Wouldn't you want, it, wouldn't you want your people to know if they were rebellious that you're mighty and wrathful? Some of you guys are like, no, of course you would. <laughs> Vengeful? Come on now, be honest with yourself. If you had a rebellious people that you created from scratch and they're rebelling against you on the day of your covenant ceremony, don't you want them to know that you could smited them? Now look at how God chooses to reveal himself even upon being betrayed by his own people as they turn their back on him. The Lord, the Lord God, what's the word? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And then it goes on to highlight God's justice. I want you to see here that the first word that God uses in Scripture, to my accounting, the first word that he uses to describe himself to humanity is compassionate. Now, do you guys remember the story of the prodigal son? You guys ever heard that before? Okay. I want you to see what the father in the parable feels towards his son. What's the first feeling or the first character quality or the first posture of the father to the son who had gone his own way, taken all of his father's gold, and though he didn't make a, a golden calf out of it, he squandered it on his own gods. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? The first word that God uses to describe himself to humanity, to rebellious human humanity is compassionate. Do you see it? Okay, so let's lean into this. Let me just finish up the last part. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the father's response? The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine 
was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I want you to see God's posture to rebellious humanity is, I can't wait for you to come home. It's compassionate. That language of compassion, the, the root word in Hebrew, and I'm not going to get all uh, geeky on you, but the root word in Hebrew, well, I've been geeky for the last 25 minutes, but the root word in Hebrew is womb. That compassion, that word that we translate as compassion, the root word in Hebrew is womb. And if you, if you don't mind my using it this way, it's wombness. Think about how a mother holds a nursing baby. How close are they? Some of you have had this experience. How close are they? Close. And what word do you use to describe the mother's posture towards the child? Okay, love, but love kind of falls apart sometimes when you use it, right? In the ancients, they had a word that, that spawned other words. One of those words is the one we translate as compassion. But if you were to think of God's posture towards you as a nursing mother towards its child, what does the parent, what does the mother in this situation want most for its child? Now, what does God want for you? How do you envision he, he first describes himself to us as not vengeful, not wrathful, not powerful, compassionate. Now, let's just think, we'll just spend a few minutes here and then we'll shut it down. We'll make a few, uh, we'll notice a few things. I think I've got seven here. We'll see if we get through all of them. You guys ready to go? Here we go. Number one, the father is full of compassion. And so for, for each one of these, I'm gonna say uh, something along these lines. Uh, for, so for those of us who are made in his image, how might we be behaving towards others? Notice that the father was injured, the father was insulted, the father was almost taken advantage of, do you see it? And what was the father's response to the rebellious son? What was he full of? Compassion. In your relationships, even when you have been insulted, what would it look like to take the father's posture towards the, rebe the rebel? Number two, notice that he was looking out for whom? Now, let me just ask you a question. If you could imagine it, what do dads of estates with fields and cattle and stuff, what are they usually doing during the day? Are they usually just sitting on the front porch looking down the road, or are they not out working work the field, right? Are they not usually busy, right? And yet, the son, when he was still a long way off, was seen by whom? Notice that the servant doesn't go and tell the father like he does the older brother. The father sees him directly, remember? Which means that the father was likely doing what every day? The father is looking for the son. He's looking out for the rebel. There's an old story. This is one of those like preacher favorite stories. I have no idea who originated it, but it's definitely not mine. But I'm going to tell it in my way. A long, long time ago, there was a son. And he went to his mom and dad, and he was restless. He couldn't wait to get out of the house. And so he said to his mom and dad, I'm out of here, and I'm never coming back. I'm tired of you. 
I'm sick of your rules. I want my freedom. Goodbye. And so the son left. Many years later, the son was sitting, thinking about his decision to run away from his parents, to neglect them and to turn on them. And he had a change of heart. He came to his senses. And so he wrote them a letter, which is like an email but on paper with a pen. He wrote them a letter, and he said in the letter, I'm so sorry, and I don't know if you'll have me back. You have every right to hate me, but if you'll have me back, I am buying a train ticket, and I will board the train on this day. It's the train that runs right past our house. You see, the situation was is that the house was uh, positioned just a few yards from the train station. And he said, if, as we're approaching the house and then the subsequent train station, if you want me back, would you hang a white towel on the clothesline? That way I can see it. I can see that you've signaled that, that you're willing to have me back and I'll get off at the train station. But if you don't want me back, which I totally get, don't hang anything. I'll see the empty clothesline. I won't get off on the train station. I'll just keep going my own way and figure it out. And so the day came, and the young man bought his train ticket, and he started to grow anxious, as any one of us would, wondering, what will be the response of my parents? And so he gets on the train, and, and minutes turn into hours, and he realizes that he's now in his, the county that he grew up in. And he realizes that he's coming up close, just around the bend to his home. And his heart is just on fire. Will they accept me? Will they love me? Will they want me back? Or will they reject my return? As the train continues, there's a great commotion in the train car that he was in people gasping, looking out the window saying, oh my gosh, look at that. Oh, I've never seen anything like that before. And as the train takes a slight turn, he looks out the window and he recognizes the house that he grew up in. But there was something different about it. The entire house, the front yard and the backyard, every square inch was covered in white. The parents had gotten the letter and their hearts were full of compassion. And so they went to every one of their neighbors, to everyone in town, and they took any white piece of cloth that they had, bedsheets, pillowcases, towels, doilies, rags, and they strew it all over their property because they wanted to communicate their love for their son. The father looks for the rebel, and when he sees him just even such a long way off, he doesn't say, come in here, sit, let's talk about things. What does he do? He runs after him. He throws his hands around his neck. Not like this, like this. And he embraces him. This is God's posture to you. He went to him, he did not wait. I want you to see that the father laid down his preferences, his comfort, and his rights in order to embrace the prodigal who had returned. He left everything and went out 
to embrace his son? What might it look like for us to communicate with a property full of white? That type of compassion and love in our relationships. Notice, too, that the father does not focus on the repentance. I love this. (laughs) This is so good. The son said, so by the way, the son had been rehearsing this over and over again. You remember? The whole ride home, the son was rehearsing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the father's response? You're dang right. Is that what he says? He doesn't, (laughs) I love this. The father's like, shut up. (laughs) We've got a party to plan. Do you see it? Do you see how abrupt the father responds? The son's like, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Could, would you just please have me back? And the father doesn't even address the imperfect repentance. He sees that he's turned already because he's standing right in front of him. And he says, we've got no time for this. It's time for a party. There are some of us who, when it comes to relationships in our life, we are expecting the repentance to just be perfect before we offer a compassionate response. Hmm? And yet here, the father in his love recognizes the repentance because the son has turned and he's come home. Did he scold the son? Did he lecture him? Did he set up a list of rules that if you obey these rules, then I'll have you back into my house? I'm not saying that those things are unwise. They have a time and a place. But I want you to see that God's posture towards us is always compassion, love first. The obedience comes second. There are many who in our community, in our culture, think this. If I just get my act together, then God will love me. Right? If I just behave then God will love me. And I want you to see that the love comes before the behavior. Do you see it? The love and the compassion and the acceptance comes first, and then the behavior will change. Do you see it? How do you envision God's posture towards you? And then finally, he insists on an urgent, on an urgent celebration. Right? The prodigal has come home. The rebel has turned. And he insists on an urgent celebration. Church family, I wanna close right here with this. There are many of us who have turned from ourselves and turned to Jesus. And Jesus says that everyone who repents and believes in the good news of who he is, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, everyone who turns and calls on the name of the Lord is, is saved. And the proper response to that love and that grace is baptism. So one of the things that we talk about a lot here at Desert Springs is helping people take their next step. After discovering Jesus and turning from ourselves and turning to him, one of the ways that we communicate that joy and that truth to others is through the act of baptism. And I want to encourage you in this. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality, but it's also something we do as a church. I want to, how many of you all have ever seen a baptism here? Show of hands, okay. What happens every time after they come out of the water, which by the way, we make 100% guarantee we always bring you up out of the water. What happens inevitably every time after they come up out of the water? Why do we do that? Because the Father calls for a celebration when anyone turns to him. And so I just wanna encourage you, if you have not, if you've turned to Jesus 
and you've not yet been baptized, let's have a party. We would love to help you take that next step. You can text uh, the word uh, next to the number up on the screen and let us know that you would like to be baptized. We would be so honored to be able to party with you in this celebration and in this truth. Friends, Jesus loves you so much. The Father's posture towards you is that of compassion and love. And for those of us who have turned from him, here's the takeaway. He calls you home. He calls you home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we give you thanks for the many ways you provide for us and bless us. And we ask now that you would instill within us a deep and abiding sense of your love, your grace, and your compassion. Continue to shape us into the type of people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks, everyone, online for joining us. We'd love to see you next week as we conclude this series, Runaway Love. We'll see you next time. This is all my hope and peace.